You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we're taking a small break from Revelation, kind of, to do a special topic study here on globalism, the Great Reset, and the book of Revelation. If you remember, we were in Revelation 13. We spent a few weeks studying the subject of this person called the Beast, who will have this global kingdom that is coming on this earth, and we talked about that in various ways So now we're going to take a little bit of a deep dive into the subject of globalism. Now, I need to give you a couple of caveats before we get into this, before we proceed. I want some things to be very clear. We will be touching on numerous trends that are going on in our world that I do think are biblically significant. But I do not want you to jump to the conclusion that what I am showing you is the exact fulfillment of the prophecies we're reading in Revelation. Okay, I'm showing them to you because they are maybe trends, maybe they're a prefiguring, a setting up or a step in that direction. And at the very least, they illustrate how easy these things we read about in Revelation will come to pass, which still remains future. However, having said that, I do also see that many of these things are the focus of a spiritual battle, this unseen war that we've talked about as we go through Revelation, playing out before our eyes in many ways. Now, also another caveat, as I mentioned, I think, in our very early studies of the book of Revelation, if a lot of people like this subject, it can be quite sensational in many ways. If you are spending more time watching YouTube videos about the World Economic Forum, about Bill Gates, about Jeff Bezos, then you are studying your Bible, then you need to be very careful. Like, you will probably be quite unbalanced in your eschatology and in your overall worldview. So we need to make sure, whilst I want us looking into these things, I do not want us going in an unhealthy manner with these things. So if you're spending more time doing that, if you know more about Bill Gates, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos than you do about Jesus Christ, you need to get your priorities straight before you move on with this subject. I'm hoping I can bring some clarity. And if you're hoping I'm just going to stand here and show you all the bad things that these globalists are doing, that's not how I'm going to handle this study. I want you to understand it at a much deeper level than that, theologically and philosophically, so that you can see it play out in the world without necessarily having to chase down every little thing that we see. That's the idea as we go through this study. So let's just recap what we saw in the book of Revelation so far related to this subject. We've seen the arrival on the world scene of this coming world leader, given many names, the Antichrist, the Beast, the Little Horn. We've called him the Antichrist properly in in our culture. The one who stands in place of Messiah. Do you remember we talked about the counterfeit trinity? This is Satan's false Messiah figure that we see who will rule the world in his stead. He will be a wonderful speaker, a wonderful orator. He'll speak blasphemous things against the Most High, and we know his power and authority has been given to him by Satan. It does seem to indicate that he will manage to bring the world under his control through a conglomerate of leading nations that he will place himself at the head of. We see he probably ends up having military control over the world because some of these people initially rebel and he defeats them in war, and therefore he is the supreme ruler at this time. This is what we call really a global government at this time. And we also learned that he will end up positioning himself as God and demanding in the end that worship be directed towards himself. Let me read to you a couple of these scriptures from Revelation 13 just to remember. It says, The whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? Revelation 13, verse 16, and he causes all, the small, the great, the rich, the poor, the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. 
and he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. So we looked at this concept of there's obviously some sort of worldwide identification system for those who do accept and worship the beast. This seems to indicate as well that through this identification system, he will have economic control. The idea is that those who refuse to obey or accept him in the position he puts himself, which is God at this point, they will not be allowed to enter into the commerce of the world. And you can extrapolate from that. Public services will probably not be open to them, any assistance that governments provide. And remember, at this point, the government will most likely control most resources. So what we see here, quite literally, is a global government that does stretch across the globe, presided by one ultimate leader, with many other national leaders serving under him. He will control military resources, he will control economic resources, political resources. He will have the full control over the infrastructure of the world at this time, and he has this identification system, and he also has a system of worship, and he controls the finances. Do you remember we studied this second character called the false prophet? who was his right-hand man, and I said this was a counterfeit Holy Spirit. His sole purpose was to direct the world to worship the beast, and he, he makes the world build a statue and puts it in the temple so that the beast can carry on going around doing his global geopolitics, and there is still a place for people to worship him. I showed you this picture last time just to let you know that this is not really something that's hard to imagine. Many di dictatorships use statues and they enforce their populations to bow down for them. This is exactly what Satan has always done when he puts man in the place of God. What we are seeing here is Satan trying to establish his kingdom like he has always wanted to do. He has always wanted to put himself in the place of God to receive worship from mankind. And he sees this as the best way he can do it. This is, I believe, the reason why it says the mark of the beast is the number of man. It's the ultimate expression of humanism, if you, if you will. Man is God, basically, or God does not have a say in man. So this is it. Satan's goal has always been to be worshipped, and during this brief period of history in the book of Revelation, he will be allowed to accomplish that. Yet we know, if you read on in Revelation, this is for a very brief period. We know when God's rule is rejected, nations move into this direction, and we'll track this through history. This should not surprise us. We quoted it a few weeks back. You remember the Apostle John, the same author who wrote Revelation? He warned us that although this is Antichrist, there is a spirit of Antichrist that is already in the world today. Let me read it to you. 1 John 4, verses 1 to 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. But this you know, the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. A spirit that is against God, against the Bible, who follow him. And we see this, actually, through the history of the world. We'll point out a few things as we go. Firstly, I want to take us back to Genesis chapter 11, please. If you have a Bible, let's go there. We need to understand this concept of human government first to understand this. There is huge significance in the story of the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 9 verse 1, after the earth had been destroyed because of its wickedness and mankind started resettling the earth after the flood, God commanded this. He said, God bless Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and the command was to multiply across the earth and then in Genesis 
chapter 10, verses 8 to 10, we find this bit of information. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech and Akkad and Kalnar in the land of Shinar. Babel in the land of Shinar is, of course, Babylon. So here we see the beginning of a kingdom that is actually started in rebellion to God's command. It is the first expression of a humanistic kingdom of which we are studying in the Revelation is the final expression. This is the first expression. What we see in Revelation with the Antichrist is the final expression, led by someone here called Nimrod in the land of Babylon. Interestingly, in Hebrew, the name Nimrod means rebellion. That's what it means. It's literally telling us what is going on here. Now let's read Genesis chapter 11, the first uh, five or six verses, and you'll see what's going on here. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it became as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city, a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And then the Lord came down to see their city and their tower, which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purposed to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel. Babel. Because, they, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So this is what's going on in the land of Babylon, as we call it today. Notice verse 4. Let us build ourselves a city, a tower, whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make ourselves a name. Not the name of God, for ourselves a name. And then look, otherwise we will be scattered abroad. And what, what had God commanded? I know I've mentioned this previously. He commanded that they scatter and fill the earth in his name, obviously. That's his command. They're saying we want to build a tower in our own name and we want to stay just where we are. This is the first expression and construction of human government expressed in specific rebellion to God's command. It's very, very important we understand this. This is a specific rebellious intent to disobey God with the building of a city. There's clearly an economic dimension here, as it's going to take a lot of labourers to build this city. There's clearly a religious dimension here, because they want to build a tower up to heaven. Religion and politics here, and economics, all coming together in this first human government. This is the archetype for future history. Yet in this passage, we also see God's opinion on this type of government here too. Whilst government is ordained by God, not this type. What does he do? He obstructs it. He confuses it. He comes down and he confuses the languages. He stopped this unity project in its tracks. From this event, the Tower of Babel as we call it, basically all of the nations, the cultures and the ethnicities and the languages that we have on the earth today originate from this scattering event. We owe their diverse origin to this event as different people groups spread across the world, bringing with them different DNA and things like that. This all took place at the Tower of Babel. It's very important for human history. But let's ask ourselves, why does God not allow? Why was he not happy with this type of government here? Ex expressly, obviously, that it 
was going against what he commanded, there's another reason. You find that in verse 6. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they all have the same language, and this is what they begin to do. And now nothing they purpose will be impossible for them. It's quite an unusual verse. We have to understand it in the context. Remember, he's just had to judge the world with the flood because he says specifically the intent of man's heart was always for evil. Man is fallen, man is broken at this point, therefore there is evil in the world. And when you have power concentrated like this, evil reigns, usually. That's what he's saying here. And when it says nothing they do will purpose, it's not talking about potential for good here. He's talking about potential for evil. Because his whole point is, if you think about it, if there is only one government, what happens if that government falls into the wrong hands? We've seen that, we, we can look around the history and see that, but imagine if it was just literally one government. Imagine what, happened, what would happen if Hitler wasn't stopped, if other nations didn't rise up against him. And I know there's TV programmes about that, but this is the idea that we see. Multiple nations provides a safeguard and a counterbalance for evil. God knew what he was doing. He knew that mankind was fallen. In God's economy, the nations that prosper will be the ones that follow God's word most closely. Now, you can look around the world today and see that is generally true. Nations that have basically been born out of a Judeo-Christian framework are the nations that have the most freedom, the most prosperity, and the highest level of human rights across the world. That is no, no coincidence. That is how God ordained it. This is what the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10 and 11 is about. We would call this biblical nationalism. This is how it is ordained. Nations are very biblical concepts. In fact, we see them in the Bible all the time. We actually see them in the future. Think of that wonderful picture that we have in Isaiah chapter 2, where Christ is ruling on this earth. It says the law will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between what? The nations. He will render decisions for many peoples, hammering their swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. That is when the run true king is ruling. But we also learn in Revelation 12 that, Revelation 12:5 it says, she gave birth to a son, speaking of Messiah, who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And Revelation 20, verse 3, it says, Satan is to be bound eventually so that he will no longer deceive the nations anymore. The doctrine of nations is actually still with us, even in the eternal state. Revelation 21, 24, the nations will walk by its light, talking about the light of Messiah in eternity, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Notice that, nations and kings of the earth in the eternal state. God ordained nations. That is a biblical form of government. That's why we call it biblical nationalism. And it stands opposed to what we would class as globalism at this stage, what we saw there in the origins in Genesis. It is no wonder, as we'll get there in a few weeks, when we read Revelation chapters 17 and 18, we see Babylon being spoken of again in terms of government being destroyed this time identified as with a woman, the whore of Babylon, as they call it. And, but this is the city. This is talking about this same thing that we saw beginning in Genesis 10, coming to fruition here. Now, this is interesting. If you look around at our culture, because I said the word nationalism there, most of us are now preconditioned to wince when we hear that word. Nationalism is often said to be a xenophobic way that people like America and, and these sorts of rulers spread their colonialism across the world. People have said that nationalism is a racist foundation. And of course, you can look through history and find examples, but understand what's going on here. You see, this is again setting us up against what God has commanded. 
This is nationalism. Now, many unification projects, political unification pro projects, still operate in the spirit of what I would call Babylon. There's a reason why the EU Parliament building was designed after the famous painting of the Tower of Babel. You can see there, it's almost step for step. There's a reason why it's like that. There's a reason why the United Nations has Isaiah chapter 2 on the side without any mention of Christ. We spoke about that in our early studies. This is mankind's kingdom. This is Nim Nimrod on the earth today. This is the spirit of Antichrist leading us to this final future kingdom. However, we need to go further than this. Globalism as we know it today, you could, another word is it's often called as utopian imperialism. We won't worry about defining those terms. I'm sure globalism, hopefully we understand what that means. But to trace modern globalism as we see it on our world today, we need to go back a couple of hundred years to the Enlightenment era. This is that period of history, 18th century, that followed the Reformation, when people threw off the shackles of religion, started discovering reason, as they called it, and we entered the modern world. We call that the start of what we call the modern world. Not many people know that what we are witnessing playing out in, our, in front of our eyes today is actually a tree, the fruit of what was planted in the Enlightenment. I want to share you a few of this. The cultural elites of the day. Basically, they began turning away from Christianity, and the vision of the Protestant nation-state, and they started formulating globalist manifestos. And these were often anti-Christian, they were godless utopian visions, where the state replaced God. That's, that's something I want you to really understand. The state replaced God. One of the most famous Enlightenment thinkers was a man called Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He wrote a very famous book called The Social Contract. He was one of these utopian dreamers, and his thought really paved the way for the French Revolution, his thought paved the way for the Russian Revolution, and he was hugely influ influential on people like Karl Marx, an inter intellectual forerunner to communism and Karl Marx. Let me read to you just a small section and analysis of his book, The Social Contract. And I want you to have our world as you read this, but bear in mind this was a few hundred years ago. This is someone writing about his work. He says, Rousseau's, Rousseau's state is not merely authoritarian, it is totalitarian since it orders every aspect of human activity, thought included. The future of the social contract and the state is brought into being was to make man whole again. You must therefore treat citizens as children and control their upbringing and thoughts, planting the social law in the bottom of their hearts. He did not use the word brainwash, but he wrote, those who control people's opinions control their actions. He moved the political process to the very centre of human existence by making the legislator, who is also the pedagogue, into, listen to this, the new messiah, capable of solving, solving all human problems by creating new men. Now, if you're aware of what's going on in our world, that should sound remarkably contemporary for you. Controlling thought. Now, there are massive issues, aren't there? We've seen it in our news with the police con complaining that they're, they're almost being charged to control thought, be thought police. If you express a thought or an opinion on social media and it, and it crosses off one of these big issues that are in our world today, the thought police will come. This is the idea, and the police, thankfully, are pushing back against this, but these are things that we have seen going on in our world. Now, notice here, the state is placed as the highest authority. You are its children... And the state is therefore what? The father. And what do we call God in Christianity? Our father. You see what's going on here. Satan's counterfeit all the way back, going on and on and on. You see this, see this happening. 
And this is the idea. We know behind the scenes Satan is at work. Notice the idea here where it says you need to control the children's upbringing and thoughts. This is the removal of parental authority that is stating here because you are no longer the primary parents. The state has the job of being the parents and therefore the state gets to say what education is. The, the removal of parental authority is well known in these circles now. We are seeing this all the time, particularly, again, with some of these hot-button issues, with medical issues and things like that. You don't have to inform parents about certain things that are going on. And the idea, you might notice the push to try and get people to agree with your opinions, is happening at a younger and younger age in our school system. It's exactly what he's talking about here. Social law, planting the social law in the bottom of their hearts. Now that's much easier to do if you can get them when their hearts are still soft and malleable and young, basically. Which is why you keep seeing this push for, for more sex education at a younger and younger age. It's why you keep seeing this push that parents' authority is being pushed out. Even educators' authority is being pushed out, basically. It's why you get these national bodies that have more control and power to say who educates your children. This is what is going on, really, behind the scenes here. Just as Rousseau said, planting it in their hearts, controlling their thoughts and their upbringing. This is just one new thing that I read about this week. The World Economic Forum, we'll talk about them in a little bit. They are the ideological descendants of Rousseau, if I could say that. They want your kids to climb into the metaverse, and they have now formed a partnership with the metaverse so that they can teach your kids about climate change. This is the idea here. And you see, once they have access to your children this way, they can basically plant their social law in their hearts. The social contract is what makes up the relationship between the state and the people, the father and the children. It's an absolute counterfeit of what the relationship should be between God and the world. But this is Satan working behind the scenes. It is a desire to make men in the image of the state. And notice that quote I read from Rousseau. He says he wants to control people's opinions, control their actions, their, their opinions, control their actions. This is what the media does today. You're probably aware of uh, Joe Biden tried to launch his Ministry of Disinformation, as he called it. And many people, of course, joked, because if you've ever read the book 1984, you'll know that there's a, there's a whole thing called the Ministry of Truth, which is the government's propaganda arm. But Joe Biden's not actually joking. He actually did, he actually did this, the, the disinformation. And what the idea is, is that these companies, working again in league with the government, will fact-check everything that goes out there, and if it does not agree with what they say is acceptable, then you get, you get censored. This has been the battle of the last year, really, hasn't it? We've seen this going on and on and on. These are where it's coming from. This stuff is not new. It has been around for a long time. The ideas were laid down hundreds of years ago. The real desire is to make men in the image of the state. This is what's behind this whole movement called cancel culture. But I want you to focus on that last part. Remember it said making new men. You want to make man whole again, the idea is to make new men. That's a very worrying phrase there, talking about making new men in your own image. All men are made in someone's image. It's God's image, you see. But listen again to this. This is from Klaus Schwab. He is the director of the World Economic Forum. He lays out his plan for making new men in his fourth industrial revolution in the Great Reset, which I'll flesh out for you in a bit, but look at this quote. He says, the scale and breadth of the unfolding technological revolution will usher in economic, social, and cultural change of such phenomenal proportions that they are almost impossible to envisage. The mind-boggling innovations triggered by the fourth industrial revolution, from biotechnology to AI, 
are redefining what it means to be human. The future will challenge our understanding of what it means to be human from both a biological and a social standpoint. It can lift humanity into a new collective and moral consciousness based on a shared sense of destiny. Now don't, mis- don't just read over that and misunderstand what he's saying. A new collective consciousness. Now, if you know what collectivism is, this is groupthink, basically. He, what he is basically saying is that there will be a collection of beliefs that are issued from on high, and they will be enforced and accepted by the populace, the father and the children, again. This is that whole concept that is going on here. This is what it means to make a new man. You make a man that is made in your image and is obedient to you. This is the concept. This is the plan that is going on here. That's what change from a social standpoint means. You must break down all existing structures and understandings and you rebuild them in your own image. This is what this whole concept is trying to do. This, you see, in a utopian scheme like this, there is really no room for diversity. And it's ironic that this vision is being fulfilled in front of our eyes in the name of diversity. You see how funny that is. Again, if it wasn't so sad, it would be funny, but it's very, very serious. You see, this means there is no place for the outworking of faith in the public life, because faith is something that doesn't really fit too well, Christian faith anyway, with these sorts of models, because we hold to things like exclusive truth, we hold to things like biblical marriage, we hold to things like man created in the image of God, we, we hold to the moral law, the good, right, wrong, Jesus' law. These things don't fit under this model that the state is trying to put us onto, and therefore you have this constant refrain, faith is fine as long as it's private. You see, that's again been a big battle in our life. Now, listen to Jewish philosopher Yoram Hazoni. He sums up this whole process perfectly, analysing this new political order. Listen to this. He says, under a universal political order in which a single standard of right is held to be in force everywhere, Tolerance for diverse political and religious standpoints must necessarily decline. Western elites, whose views are now being aggressively homogenised in conformity with the new liberal construction, are finding it increasingly difficult to recognise a need for the kind of toleration of divergent standpoints that the principle of national self-determination has once rendered axiomatic. Tolerance, like nationalism, is becoming a relic of a bygone age. Any such dissent is held to be vulgar and ignorant, if not evidence of fascistic thinking. Campaigns of delegitimization have been directed against the practice of Christianity and Judaism, on which the old biblical political order is based. The teaching and practice of traditional forms of Judaism and Christianity will become ever more untenable. Is this not exactly really what you see playing in our world today. Notice, if you do agree that nations should be independent, you're often called a nationalist. If you're called a nationalist, you're called a a racist or you're called a fascist. Just like he said here, there's a whole organisation called Antifa, stands for anti-fascists. They do these sorts of things without realising they are the ones operating really in the way that is criminal and, and fascist. But that is what we have going on. Language has started to have no meaning in this world when you do this. It's important to grasp this with the shift from the old political order, the nation states based on Judeo-Christian principles, a change in everything occurred, particularly in language. Under this new political order, they seek unity above all else. 
unity of thought, unity of mind, unity of expression above all else. And unity can be enforced or coerced if necessary. We see that happening today. That's what most of these laws that are going on our books are there to do, to make us think and accept the same things. And often this is done in the name of many benevolent causes. And I want to share with you one of the main terms that you need to recognise of how this is being done, and that is the term social justice. You heard that term? Hear it all over the place today, don't you? A social justice warrior. And before we joke about these things, this is, again, very serious, very powerful in the political world. Let me just contrast with you so you understand what is going on here. Traditional justice. I'll give you one definition here. This is... It's quite hard to define singly, but he says, this is from one political commentator, Christian guy, he says, there are two kinds of justice. Communitive justice, which is living in right relationship with God and with others. And two, distributive justice is impartially rendering judgment, righting wrongs, meeting out punishment for law-breaking. Distributive justice is preserved for God and God-ordained authorities, including parents, homes, churches, civil authorities, state and government, as God has ordained for it to be exercised. That was traditionally really how we all understood justice. Social justice, on the other hand, is a very different thing. This is a definition of social justice. Listen. Deconstructing traditional systems and structures that are deemed to be oppressive and redistributing power and resources from oppressors to their victims in the pursuit of equality of outcome. If there's one thing you understand, it's that. That is the definition of justice. That is what is going on behind all of these protest movements that we see springing up across the world, deconstructing traditional systems. And what are these traditional systems? Parents, families, and church. They are the things that are really in the targets there. How do you deconstruct a traditional system? Deconstruct is a fancy word, isn't it? What do they really mean? You've got to destroy it i.e. it has to be broken in order to put something new in its place. If it's not broken, you need to break it. That's the idea. And this is, again, much of what we've seen going on over the last few years is this. You might have even noticed that the word deconstruction is quite a popular term in the church today. Many people call themselves deconstructionists. There's a whole, there's many, many websites, the ex-evangelicals and things like this, who have gone through the process of deconstruction. And they now consider themselves more enlightened Christians. What this basically means, though, in the religious sphere, as in the political, is the casting aside of the old orthodox beliefs of Christianity and the acceptance of these new progressive causes that are related to this new political order. And this is what you see. And when they, and in the church anyway, people seem to think they're clever when they say they're deconstructionists, like they're somehow more enlightened, where in reality all they've done is been hoodwinked by this new political order and they've accepted and rejected the word of God for the word of man. That's basically what it is. This is why, do you remember when the Black Lives Matter movement came? First thing they had on their website is that they were committed to the destruction of the nuclear family. What does that mean? That means the Christian, the family as it's presented for you in the Bible. They've now removed that from their website because people have com complained about it. This is why we see parental authority being challenged. This is why you see such pressure put with the LGBT movements because they want to promote various other family models. And this is getting serious now. Just in, in Canada, a father was recently arrested for misgendering his own daughter. Just arrested for that. And this is what I mean. The state has the power and it's taken from the traditional things that are now deemed oppressive, and they need to be deconstructed and they need to be destroyed, and therefore the state is free to rebuild them in their own image. Let's have another look at that. What does it mean to redistribute power? So again, it's a very nice way of phrasing things, to redistribute power. 
Firstly, if you're going to redistribute something, you have to ask who is doing the redistributing. Someone's got to have power to take and give to someone else. That is, again, the government who do that. The father in this worldview. They must take away from those they deem to be oppressive, and we've already seen who they class, the church, the family, these sorts of things, these oppressive systems, as they call it, and therefore they are free to take. The government are the global gatekeepers of society, and we have been seeing this play out in front of our eyes. Now, one day, as we've seen by studying the book of Revelation, this government will end up being led and unified under a particular person. We call him the Antichrist, or the Beast. People have been waiting for this man for a long time. We seem to think, oh, it's going to be unusual. How could anyone ever accept someone who's going to clearly be working for Satan? Very easily, we've just gone through a bit of history that show you governments are always doing these types of things. This is Paul Henry Spack. He's the former Belgian Prime Minister. He was one of the architects of the European Union. He said this, We do not want another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all people, to lift us out of this economic morass into which we are sinking. Send us such a man, and be he God or the devil, we will receive him. No. It's not a joke, it's a true quote. You see how primed the world is for this period of history that we're looking at in Revelation. So let's move on now. Hopefully I've laid a theological ground for you there. I've shown you ideologically how these things do play out in the real world and where we are in our culture. And now I want to look at some of these Western elites who are advancing this union in our world today and how they are doing it. The major players in this regard are those group I mentioned, the World Economic Forum. These are a fairly new organisation, in fact. They've only been around since the 70s, but they are pretty much the major players on the block right now, major collection of what we would call globalists. The World Economic Forum links together about 1,500 of the world's largest and richest companies, and their sole purpose is to facilitate their interaction with governments around the world. That alone scares me. These are all of the drug companies, all of the major banking companies, all of the major tech companies, Facebook, Google, IBM, Volkswagen, Barclays, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, all of these people are members of the World Economic Forum. Many in our own government are. The forum is best known for its annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland, usually around June time, and it brings together all these global leaders where they can address these challenges of the world. Their website says that the forum engages the foremost political, business, cultural and other leaders of society to shape global, regional, and industry agendas. Again, it all sounds very good, doesn't it, when you read it in this language. Let me just translate it for you. This is a mixture of the wealthiest private businessmen in the world who are working in league with governments of the world to shape global agendas. <laughs> what does that even mean, shape global agendas? I mean, it's so vague that it's nondescript, but yet at the same time, it's broad enough that it can really mean anything that they want it to mean. They shape global agendas. These are the globalists of the day. What they basically want is centralised power and national democracy removed from having that power. In, a, in 2021, their agenda was what they called the Great Reset. I know I've spoken on this a few times. This is, again, quite simply the belief of the World Economic Forum that the whole world needs a great reset. All of the world's social, political, economic, environmental, industrial structures need to be dramatically reconstructed. Now, all they need is a way to really achieve these goals. That's a lot of things to reconstruct there, to reset. And like I said, it's quite hard to reset something if it's not actually broken in the first place. So quite often the first step is to break it. And this is what we see going on. This is, in fact, the founder, 
he, he saw COVID-19 as the opportunity to do this. He even wrote a book. The man is Professor Klaus Schwab. He believed that COVID-19 was the opportunity to reset the world. In his book, he said, the pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. Many things will change forever. A new world will emerge. The societal upheaval unleashed by COVID-19 will last for years, for generations. Many of us are pondering when things will return to normal. The short response is never. Every country from the United States to China must participate. Every industry from oil to gas to tech must be transformed. In short, we need a great reset of capitalism. For global leaders to shape the future state of global relations, the direction of national economies, the priorities of societies, the nature of business models, and the management of global common interests. Again, understand that. These people will shape the direction of your economies, the priority of your societies, and the nature of your business models, and they will manage your global common interests too. Thank you very much. This is true utopian globalism on display here. This is why we do find within the Klaus's book, The Great Reset, he specifically says that globalism is the model of government that they want. He says the more that nationalism and isolationism pervade the global polity, what he means there is the more that these stubborn democratic nations try and hold on to their freedom, that's what he means, the greater the chance that a global governance becomes ineffective. Sadly, we are now at this critical juncture. Put bluntly, we live in a world where nobody is really in charge. And what's his solution? We'll be in charge, guys. That's basically what he's saying. Us, the World Economic Forum, the richest people in the world and the governments in the world will be in charge and will shape your global future for you, you silly people. That is basically what we have here, if I can summarise it like that. And what are these global priorities? You can go on the website, you can read them. They're all typically obvious. They're, in fact, all of the big things that we see playing out in our world today. Climate change, diversity, equality. It's, it's that social justice definition that I read to you is basically what it is playing out across the world. That is their priorities there. These are the things that they want to shape the world. And one of the best tools for doing that has been climate change for them. Now, again, this is not even remotely touching on what your personal views on climate change and stewarding the earth are. There's very good biblical ways to look at that. But climate change is the crisis that keeps on giving. You understand that. You know, COVID was a good crisis. They did a lot during that. Climate change is the crisis that just keeps on going. The World Economic Forum is very committed to radical action on carbon change, on climate change, rather. Climate change legislation is a wonderful tool for bringing governments and resources under one roof. A steady stream of apocalyptic warnings and dire futures being visioned keeps people fearful, to be frank. And when people are fearful, as we've seen with COVID, people give away their freedoms when they're fearful. And they are doing this a lot. Recent survey, young people's climate anxiety. This has been now given a clinical name. It's called eco-anxiety. It's impacting the daily lives of many people. In fact, nearly 60% of people between the age of 16 to 25 are extremely worried, with 45 saying that it neg negatively affects their life on a daily basis. On a daily basis, it negatively affects their life. And again, remember the WE Forum wanted to plug your kids into the metaverse to teach them about climate change at the youngest age possible. You see how all these things are just really connected, and this is what we have going on. If you read between the lines, if you read behind the benevolent statements like we want to take care of the environment, what you will always see with climate change regulation 
it will stifle small businesses. It increases tax that will eventually rule out anyone but the super wealthy from being able to adhere to it. It takes away personal freedoms, it removes travel, and it gives more control to governments. Every time. That's always what it ends up with. Let me show you one innovation that came from this year's World Economic Forum at Davos. This is Alibaba president, they're a massive tech group, Michael Evans. He's introduced a project designed to track people's personal carbon footprint. So not just, not just your, your office or your business now, it's your personal carbon footprint. The tech giant is working on this. The intent is to have people measure pretty much every action of their lives for their personal carbon footprint. And they will then be awarded social-style credits, called carbon credits, when they behave in a manner expected by the state. This includes monitoring where and how people are travelling, where they are eating, where they are shopping. You even get 200 credits for licking your plate. I'm deadly serious. Like, these are the things that... This is, how, this is how much they want this control. And they're working on this. These things are well in progress and they're already being test, test piloted in some countries around the world. Now, it's not hard to imagine. You go one step further. If a personal carbon score is below government standards, surely that would come with a restriction or a punishment, just like carbon scores for, for businesses and companies already do in this country you know, around the world. They have something very similar for businesses now that they're knocking out called ESGs, Environmental Social Governance Awards. And these things are basically to show that companies have a good score on their environmental, environmental impact and on their human rights and diversity. You can tell what all these things were, where they're headed. To check, basically, if they are using best practices. And if their ESG is not high enough, well, then there's only one step away from the government saying you can't operate. It's just very easy to see. And what does that do? It brings all of the control under this one government. Now, of course, many of these standards for energy will probably be unachievable for small business owners. Excessive regulation and taxation and these sorts of things always kill the small business owners. Only the big businesses, the ones at Davos, who work in league with the governments and get kickbacks from the government for these sorts of things, will be the ones that will probably be allowed to operate. We already see that happening in our world. You see, this is about power, not about the environment. Remember the concept, the state is put in the position of father. It's a counterfeit that we see going on behind the scenes, the unseen war. What is one thing about the true father? He is omnipotent, yes? He is all-powerful. The counterfeit father seeks to be all-powerful too. But he's not, obviously, in the same way, so he does this quite like this. This is Satan working behind the scenes here. Again, we see that this is about power, not the environment. All of these things, without a high social credit score, you probably won't be able to use the services of the world. I'll remind you, he causes all, the small, the great, the rich, the poor, the free men, to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. He provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of his beast or his number. It's not far away. You can see these things are prefiguring very clearly what we have. One final thing that I'll look at is economic reform. It's obviously linked to these above things. Schwab suggests that he wants to reset capitalism. Do you remember that? Now, capitalism is much vilified in our world today. Yet true capitalism has done more to bring people out of poverty and generate wealth in this world than anything else. But when he says stakeholder capitalism, this is a new thing. He says, it's a model I first proposed a half century ago. And listen, look, it positions private corporations as the trustees of society. And it is clearly the best response to today's environmental challenges. Again, lovely sounding words, but notice what he's saying. He's positioning... Private corporations, the ones at Davos, the big ones who own everything. So what he's basically saying is those who have the capital 
are the ones who will now get to be the trustees of society and they'll shape the way everything goes forward. It's very, very dangerous thinking that we have here going on. The vision for economic reform post-COVID, now that we have such inflation, that we have debt all over the place, requires a new economic reform, and I won't go into it much, but some of the things they've proposed are central bank digital currencies. This is not Bitcoin. These things are, you know, they can't track Bitcoin. These are not run by the government in that respect. So what they want to do is get rid of all these digital currencies and implement a government currency. You can see here, they're very close to, to down the line. This is from the, the Economist. You probably can't see there, but it says GovCoins, the digital currencies that will transform finance. Government issued digital currency. And then in the bottom, it says, where it usually says in God we trust, it says in tech we trust. You see? You can just see these shadows going on all over the place. And of course, the thing is, when you have a central digital currency from the bank, obviously every single transaction can be traced and tracked. There's no dealing in cash. There's no, nothing that you can do that is not known from whoever controls this government. The Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey said, I think in a few years' time, we'll be using a centralised digital currency. And he said that a few years ago. Now, another option that they proposed was giving each citizen a basic universal income, regardless of the work you do or regardless of how exceptional you may be at certain things. And of course, what does this do? It destroys free market capitalism, the motivation, the entrepreneurial spirit that people have to provide for their families. It basically turns the world into a massive welfare system with the government and the World Economic Forum at the top of the food chain. They would redistribute wealth, which is their, their social justice thing coming out again, open borders, shorten the working weeks. All of these things have been proposed and they are being seriously talked about amongst these groups. All sounds very familiar. We see them. If you, if you watch for them, you see them all over the place. In Tech We Trust, we would say, just as we read, who can wage war with the beast? In the beast we trust is what it will actually be when we see the final fruition of these things in the end times. Now, we could go on and show you many more of these trends, but I want to just take a moment now to ask, what do we do? How does the church respond? Some people get really scared when they see these things happening. Some people get frustrated, they get angry, and I understand all of those things. The response that we need to do is actually very simple, in my mind, to be honest, and it is simply this. We need to take our Christianity seriously. Okay, that is it. That, that is the, and all, all that that entails, we need to understand that our role as ambassadors of Christ understand what that means to represent him on this earth. We need to be preaching the gospel. We need to be influential in the world while we still can. We need to be salt and light. How do we do that? We do that by living in obedience to the word of God. We need to show that we do live for a different world, for a different kingdom. We have different worldviews, different values, and those things will triumph in the end. Ultimately, we have a different authority. That is the thing, and it will never be the state. It will always be the word of God. And that is your safeguard against these things. We need to take comfort in the promises of Christ in light of these things. We know one day, speaking of the book of Revelation, obviously, the man who does take charge will be short-lived. I don't believe the church will be there for that point, but we may well live through many more of these things that are heading us in that direction that could get very, very bad. But we must remember that Revelation does tell us that one day the true king will come. He will destroy all of these false kingdoms. He will set up his own kingdom, the Davidic kingdom as we call it. It will be the only true, just and fair society ruled over by the only truly righteous king in all of history. And that is our ultimate future. 
So until then, we take the words of Jesus, occupy until I come. And we have to ask ourselves, what are we occupying our time with? Is it for him or is it for us? And that is a challenging concept. I leave that thought with you. Let's pray. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.